But this morning, we're moving out of our previous series on God's good design, and we're moving into a time in the parables of Jesus, specifically in the gospel of Mark. So if you would, join me in Mark chapter three, and we're gonna begin in verse 22. And if you're someone who you maybe you're not familiar with a physical Bible, um, Mark is located in um, the New Testament. It's actually the second book of the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark. New Testament is located in the back portion of the Bible. And if you're using the Pewback Bible, we're going to be on page 838. Before we dive into the parable for the morning specifically, we really need to define what a parable is and why Jesus used them. Parables are stories or analogies that have symbolic meaning. But this is a little bit different when you hear me or others use an analogy or an illustration because my, the goal on my end is to help you understand and apply God's word. Like I, I teach, I'm, I'm teaching the word and I'm trusting that the Lord will do with it whatever he will. For Jesus, parables had a dual purpose. For some, they were used to help reveal and give further understanding. But for others, they were actually used to conceal understanding. Here's what I mean by this. His disciples actually approach him in Mark chapter four, so just a, not long after this where we're gonna read, and they ask him, what is the purpose of the parables? And Jesus gives us this purpose in his own words in chapter four, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him, about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In this passage here, when, when Jesus says to you, and he starts responding to his disciples, to you refers to genuine disciples. These are genuine people who say they, they believe in Jesus. So parables helped genuine followers of Jesus better understand the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. That's the first function. But then Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter six to explain the purpose of the parables for those on the outside. Now those on the outside are those who remain in unbelief and have no intention or desire to repent of their sins and acknowledge Jesus for who he is. They've denied Jesus and will continue to do so. So for those who are willingly denying Jesus, like the Pharisees, for example, the religious leaders of the days, Jesus spoke in parables to conceal understanding, which serves as both a judgment for their unbelief, but also an act of mercy. We will, here's why, because we, all of us, every single one of us, we will stand before God and we will give an account based on what we've done, based on what we know. So for someone to remain in unbelief with vast knowledge of the gospel, with vast knowledge of who Jesus is, vast knowledge of the kingdom of God, for that individual, there is greater accountability to be had before God. So Jesus speaking in parables is both an act of judgment and an act of mercy. And, and admittingly, this is one of those passages that emphasizes the tension of two simultaneous truths. On one hand, we are responsible 
for how we respond to the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. And on the other, yet, there's the truth that that truth is given to us by God himself. We see that in chapter four, verse 11, Jesus's words, he says, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. Who, given by who? Given by God himself. And this is a tension that we try really hard to solve. It's a tension that we try really hard to relieve, but we just have to be comfortable sitting in it. Because God speaks as these two things, these two truths are harmonious in God's eyes. Now, for us, as it relates to parables, we're on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have access to the fullness of God's word. So we can look at these parables as they were presented, but also explore their meaning. And so as we dive into the parable of the divided kingdom in Mark chapter three, we're gonna make sure first that we understand the parable itself. And then we'll move to what it all means for us. We can't, so oftentimes we wanna skip to application, but we don't have application unless we understand the actual meaning of the text first. So, so stick with me for a little bit. Look with me in chapter three, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, being Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. We already need to pause. Pause there for a moment because we got questions. Who are the scribes? Why are they coming from Jerusalem? Why are they making these accusations towards Jesus and what do these accusations actually mean? We've got questions to answer first. Matthew's and Luke's account of this interaction tells us that Jesus actually just got done um, healing a demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute. And the people who witnessed this were amazed. And they're asking, can this be the son of David? Which is a messianic title. They're asking, can this be the promised Messiah? The one that we have been waiting for? Well, this caused the scribes and the Pharisees, again, who were experts in the Old Testament law, the religious leaders of the day, it caused them to follow and, and, and investigate Jesus, which was a regular occurrence. And rather than being amazed with the people, they accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul and casting out demons by the power of the prince or ruler of demons. Beelzebul is another name for Satan, in referring to the ruler of evil spirits or the ruler of demons. And the accusation is coming in short, it's this. This is the accusation. Jesus is possessed by Satan and the power he displays comes from Satan. Can you imagine that just for a moment? Like you're witnessing Jesus in the flesh, working miracles, demonstrating all of his power. And then can you imagine seeing those things, hearing that and then being like, yeah, I think that's Satan. Like that feels really odd to us as we're removed from the situation, but this was the stance of the Pharisees. In their unbelief, they made this accusation. Now, I will say, they acknowledge that he used power to cast out a demon. That's good, but they attribute his power to a partnership with Satan. Jesus calls them on the ridiculousness of their accusations. Look with me in verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. First, I want to point out that Jesus called them, the Pharisees, the scribes, to him. Not because he heard them saying these things, but because he knew their thoughts. This is a reminder that Jesus is God and that he is omniscient. He knows the hearts of each one of us. And so he knows their very thoughts and says, hey, you guys, come here. I want to tell you about something real quick. And first, he asked them a very plain question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Again, that's the common sense question. But then he introduces the parable and he makes a very singular point several different ways. First, he says, how can a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand? Just picture that for a moment. If you can picture a massive kingdom under one rule, the the idea is if if there are those within that kingdom who are not united under that rule, but they're actually going different directions and following after different rulers and, and, and stand for different things, eventually that kingdom is going to collapse. Eventually that kingdom is not going to be able to stand. It will fall. A house divided itself against itself will not stand. Smaller scale, but think about in our own household. If, if, we're, if we're not on the same page, if, if there's infighting, if there's just all this happening, eventually the foundation, not the literal foundation, but figuratively the foundation of that home, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall apart. It cannot stand. I mean, we get this concept. Have you ever been on a team of some kind or observed a team that isn't on the same page? Because it never goes well. Right? If you maybe even in, within your own household, maybe you're playing some type of cooperative game whether that's a video game, a board game, or something, and you're supposed to be on the team, but two people on the same team are trying to do different things, you're probably going to lose because you're not making progress. Or, or think about a basketball team. Right? If you can picture a basketball team where you have two teams facing off against one another, but you have five individuals on the court at one time, imagine one of these teams on the offensive possession, you had two ball hogs on the same team on the court at the same time. Some, one of those ball hogs is going to dribble the, court, dribble the ball down the court. And then even when people are opening, what are they going to do? They're going to keep it themselves. And so they are setting their team back because they are playing selfishly. Next possession, you go down the court. The other ball hog gets the, the ball in their hand. What's going to happen? Nobody else is touching the ball. And maybe you score, but more often than not, you're driving into traffic. It's not going to go well. Again, teams, same team but they act in a way that opposes each other. It never ends well. And in this case specifically, if Satan opposed himself, his purpose and his goals would come to an end. And so to illustrate that this isn't the case, Jesus is saying, here's the parable and saying, this is ridiculous. And he uses the word but, that's always a contrast, a transition into here's something different to say that this is not the case. They're actually witnessing something else. Jesus says this in verse 27. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds, he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus makes this statement to say, I'm not working with Satan, I'm, I'm opposing him. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm opposing all of his work. Now, sidebar, to understand parables, it's important to identify who the people are in these parables. So the strong man here in verse 27, the strong man is Satan. His goods, 
are those who are under his power and authority, those who do not know Jesus and are in bondage to sin. And the one who binds the strong man and plunders his goods is Jesus himself. So Jesus casting out the demon is an example of him entering into Satan's domain, entering into his house, his domain of darkness, and binding him by undoing his work and then plundering his goods. In this case, healing and freeing a man from his oppression. This shows that he's not only more powerful than Satan, but that he has come to overthrow and overpower Satan's kingdom, not partner with it. This should have been common sense to the people, as smart as the scribes and the Pharisees were, but they were so stuck in their unbelief and their hatred of Jesus that they willfully rejected what they knew to be true. And instead, they attributed the work of God to the work of Satan, which is extremely dangerous. See, there's a general purpose for parables that's been touched on, but each individual parable also has a specific purpose. And in verse 28, Jesus steps out of the parable and he speaks plainly, revealing the purpose of this particular parable. Look with me at verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they under. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now it would be helpful to hear Jesus' words in Matthew's account as well. Matthew chapter 1, or chapter 12 rather, 31 says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or to the age to come. Now just to be very clear on that last part, Jesus is not implying that there is forgiveness to be had after death, that is not the case. What he is saying is he's, he's using this phrase, this age and the age to come, to, to talk about eternity which lines up with his language in Mark when he says it's an eternal sin. So his idea, he has eternity in mind here. And now I just wanna even admit here, like, or I think it's pretty obvious, but if you're hearing this for the first time, like this, specifically these verses for the very first time, this probably freaks you out a little bit. Understandably so. If you've been around the church, maybe you've, you've grown up in the church and um, you have, you're at least familiar with these verses, you've, you've heard them before, well, you've, you've probably at least been freaked out in the past. Question is, what does Jesus mean? Because if we miss what he means here, we miss the entire purpose of this parable. So he starts by saying, in the positive, he says, all sins will be forgiven people, whatever blasphemies they utter. What is a blasphemy? We need to understand what that is. In simple terms, to blaspheme God is to be derogatory or disrespectful towards him. Right? God is holy and perfect. There is no one like him. And to, to talk about him in a way that is less than that, to insult him, is to blaspheme against him. Right? It's derogatory disrespect. Now, keeping that in mind, the focus Jesus has, again, it's positive. It begins on, on the extent of God's forgiveness towards sin, which is vast, I mean, picture with me for a moment the worst person you could imagine. 
Picture in your head someone who's like, this is the most wicked and vile person you could ever come up with. Maybe there's someone even specific coming to your mind, either today or in the course of history. If not, make someone up who you think is the most evil person you could come up with in your mind. Here's the thing about them. If that person, who you'd say this is the most wicked person in the world, actually comes to acknowledge their wickedness, acknowledges that they have sinned, and have looked, and turns instead, they've repented, so they're turning, they've acknowledged their sin, and they turn from that sin to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you have died for my sin, and that you have risen three days later so that I may have life. And I no longer want to live this life of wickedness and sin, but I want to live for you. That person, the most wicked person you can imagine, can have forgiveness too. In fact, if that's their posture, if that's their response, they will be forgiven. Doesn't mean that there, there are no earthly consequences for their sin. It doesn't mean that there won't be things that they still have to deal with on this side of eternity. But forgiveness is theirs. Paul is a prime example of this. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says, it's for this reason that I have been shown mercy as an example for all those who had come to believe. And in this passage, he goes on before that to say, I'm the worst of all sinners. Like I am the, I am the, the foremost, right? Paul was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. And he was someone who actually spoke out against Jesus, and in that thought process, and this is actually the same line I should say, as we saw in Matthew 12, Jesus says that blasphemy against him specifically can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is different. What is blaspheming the Spirit and what makes it different? Well, first and foremost, it's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. I mean, think about this for a moment. All that Jesus has done to this point the healing, right? Raising people from the dead, casting out demons, all the other miracles, everything that he did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And though it was obvious and they could not deny the works of Jesus, they instead opted to attribute the work and power of the Spirit to Satan. They were willfully denying the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus, among his people. This is a big deal because to willfully deny or reject the work of the Spirit is to willingly deny the very means of our salvation. And here's how I say this. Jesus himself, John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So firstly, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. He bears witness about Jesus. For those of us who know Jesus, the Holy Spirit at one point was bearing witness about him. Later on, John 16 says, and when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. When Jesus uses the word sin here, he's using, it's a, singular, it's a singular position. In other words, he's talking about one specific type of sin. He's not talking about sin in general, and he's talking about specifically the sin of unbelief. 
He's saying that the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world, convict you and me of our unbelief in Jesus. So the Spirit bears witness about Jesus and convicts us of our unbelief in him. And very pointedly in Paul's letter to Titus, Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, we, we can't do a thing by, on ourselves, by ourselves to earn our salvation. We can do nothing by ourselves. So it's not because of our works, but according to his own mercy. How did we, how did we experience this mercy? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bears witness about Jesus, convicts us of the sin of unbelief toward Jesus, and moves us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit is called an eternal sin or an unforgivable sin because the only sin that will not and cannot be forgiven is the sin of unbelief. And it's not because the cross lacks power, but because the heart denies that power. And again, to deny or reject the work of the Spirit, it means rejecting the only means of our salvation. And subsequently, it means remaining in unbelief. Jesus uses the, the, this parable of a, of a kingdom or a house divided to reveal the nonsensical nature of their accusations but also to reveal the gravity of those accusations. For them to do this had major, major implications. And this is where we'll be able to derive some more specific meaning for us. The first thing that I feel like you need to know after hearing all of this is that a genuine follower of Jesus has not and cannot commit the unforgivable sin. And here's how I know this. If you know Jesus, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin because you know Jesus. You may have resisted the work of the Spirit and ignored conviction for a time, but at some point, the resisting ended and gave way to surrender. At some point, you opened your eyes. You would not know Jesus unless you responded to conviction and were made alive by the Spirit. And you cannot commit the unforgivable sin because going from spiritual deadness to spiritual life is a one-way street. Going from death to life is a one-way street. We can still misattribute the work of the Spirit as believers, which we'll talk about shortly, but not in the way that Jesus is talking about. And I wanted to start here with this simple point because I want to alleviate any fears or concerns over this because I've had plenty of conversations like this here before where someone comes to me asking how they know if they've committed this sin. Or they're like, I'm afraid that I've committed this sin. And this isn't the foolproof 100% way of looking at this. But there's like, chances are, if you're asking me, did I commit this sin? You have not. And the reason why is because this type of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, again, it is willful. It is, it is an I know what I'm doing. And so if you're like, I'm not sure if I did this, you would know. The whole, like blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you do not accidentally do this. And it's not a one-time action. Like, oops, I did it one and done. It is purposeful, 
willful and ongoing unbelief. So if you know Jesus, do not be fearful over this because that's not what God has for you. Instead, a genuine genuine follower of Jesus is meant to walk confidently in faith. Now as elementary and as simple as this may sound, here's why that's important. Jesus has plundered you from among Satan's house. He's plundered me from among Satan's house. So Satan can no longer have you. Satan can no longer have me. But while he can't have us, the next best thing is for him to deceive us into being fearful and questioning whether we are truly God's. If I question whether God loves me or, or still loves me after that thing that I did or that thing that I'm going to do tomorrow, we are right in Satan's crosshairs because that doubt and fear, it will paralyze us. If I doubt God's love for me, if I feel shame over sin that I've already been forgiven of, I am going to probably pray less because that means talking to the God that I think is disappointed in me do you guys want to talk to somebody who you feel is disappointed or you're, is, you're disappointing? No way. Now, the same for God. In prayer, if I feel like he's looking down on me and, and he's feeling like I'm feeling shame, I'm going to pray less. And I'm probably going to serve him less because I don't think he wants to use me. I think because of my sin, I, there's no way that he could possibly use me. Then I, but to that, I'd say, have you read the Bible? How many examples of that do we have? But that's still, these are lies that we, we tend to believe. And, and so in believing these things, what have we done? We've taken ourselves out of the game. Because Satan can't have us, right? That's great. But he can deceive us into living in a way that is not effectively working for the Lord. And so how do we combat these lies? How do we combat any lies? With truth. 1 John 4, 17 through 18. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The follower of Jesus has no fear in being judged according to sin because that judgment has already taken place on the cross. Jesus was judged in our place. And so because of that, with Paul, we can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Speaking of Romans 1, you move forward in that letter. Not long after this, Paul says in Romans 8, 14 and 16, he says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, daughters of God as well. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I can be confident in my faith because I have the Spirit, God himself dwelling within me. He's with me and he's constantly reminding me that I am his. That same Spirit that has made us alive and that dwells within us has also sealed us. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you wonder, what happened the moment that I came to faith, the moment where the Lord saved me, what happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Like, if I guarantee something to you, I'm gonna do my best to, to make good on that, but chances are, there's at least a chance that I fall short of that. But when God guarantees something, it's going to happen. You and I have been sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee of what's to come. And since we have the Spirit and we have been sealed by him, and since Jesus serves as a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who took on flesh and was tempted in all the same ways as us, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16. 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In our times of need, which are many, we can confidently approach God's throne. I mean, think about that for a moment. The God of the universe, God, right? Like God of the universe, holy, perfect. We're told we can confidently approach his throne and ask him when we need help. Confidence, don't mistake that for arrogance. We don't approach with arrogance. We don't approach with entitlement. We approach with confidence, not self-confidence either. I got nothing to be confident about in and of myself, not before God at least. My confidence comes from what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so because of that, I can approach God whenever I need, when I'm in need, when I need help. And we're told that we will receive mercy and grace. Walking around constantly looking over our shoulder, it's no way to live with Jesus. God wants us to walk in confidence. And part of walking in this confidence, it means confidently testing what we do see and hear. And so a genuine follower of Jesus can and should test everything, not being quick to reject or accept it as being from God. So again, if we know Jesus, we cannot blaspheme the spirit in the ultimate sense that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter three but we can still misattribute or deny what the Spirit is doing. Sometimes we're quick to dismiss what we hear or see as being, as from, being from God. We say, nope, that's not it, not from God. Other times, we just blindly accept that what's happening is from him. Now, in the case of the Pharisees, they just rejected everything that they heard and saw. And, and had they actually tested it up against what they had, which is the Old Testament, well, it would have passed the smell test, what they were seeing. Because Jesus himself actually tells them, and you, you search the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, thinking you're gonna find life, but they actually speak of me. And so if they would have actually done this and tested what they saw up against the Old Testament, they would have seen that Jesus is exactly who he says he was. But they didn't do that. Scripture tells us to test what we see and what we hear. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, Paul ends this letter by saying, first, do not quench the spirit. And we're given this kind of imagery, this illustration of a flame. If you've ever been around a bonfire, well, you have to actually do work to keep that, that flame burning. For us to feel the warmth of that, of that fire, it needs to be kept burning. But if, if it's left by itself, what's gonna happen? It's gonna end up, like the fire will still be going, but it'll be just a flicker. Now for us, 
The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is always present with us. But there's a way if we continue to ignore his work, if we continue to, to ignore what it is that he's doing in our lives, the flame begins to die down. Not because of the Holy Spirit, but because of our unwillingness to hear him and to listen to him. And so this idea of do not quench the spirits, don't ignore him. Don't get to a point where I am no longer open to what the spirit is doing in my heart. And, and so I'm not gonna feel the warmth of the spirit. I'm not gonna feel the presence of the spirit. So Paul says, don't quench the spirit. He goes on, well, what, what, how do we do that? One of the ways that we do that is despising prophecies. He says, do not despise prophecies. Do not reject what God has spoken through his word or through others. Instead, what? Test everything. In other words, measure it up against God's word. What you see, what you hear, is it matching what we see from scripture? A very easy application of this is me right now. I hope that you trust me. I hope that you can trust that what I'm saying is truth from God's word. But I don't want you to blindly accept it. You must test what you hear from here even. You must test what you see. That's true for Tim, that's true for Nate, it's true of any of us up here. Don't just blindly accept what you hear. Test it. Does it line up with God's word? So he says, but test everything. And what do we do then? We hold fast to what is good. As we're testing it and we filtered it through God's word, if this is good, if this matches up, hey, we're gonna take it, we're gonna receive it, we're gonna run with it. But if it doesn't, well, we abstain from every form of evil. We reject it, we let it fall by the wayside. John echoes this idea at the beginning of 1 John 4. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. And, and so he gives a very simple test. How do we know that what we're hearing and what we're seeing is from God? Does this teacher, does this lesson, does this spirit, like, do they preach Jesus? Like, do they acknowledge that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, that he has come in the flesh, and that he is God? If they do not, that spirit is not from God. Pat, that fa fails the test. But if that spirit preaches Jesus for who he is, it's from God. All right, it's a very simple test. Does it preach Jesus? Does it align with God's word? So the caution for us is to not be so quick to dismiss or assign what's happening as a work of God. Instead, we're called to test it. We may find that it doesn't pass the smell test. Right, what we see or what we hear, in that case, it's merely man's wisdom or perhaps it is the work of Satan. He's at work today. But by testing it, we can call it what it is and we can reject it. Or we may find that the Spirit of God is doing something here. And if that's the case, we want to test it to be sure. Because that is a train that we want to be on, not get in front of. And I say, I say it that way because in Acts chapter 5, the Spirit was working among the disciples. The early church was exploding and the Pharisees, go figure, were enraged at this. But Gamaliel, a Pharisee himself, brought wisdom to the council. And he said this. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. 
But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. If God is working, we want to be a part of that. We don't want to be found opposing God. But we will not know that unless we test it. We can test it, and we should test it. So I'll close with this thought. If you're here this morning, you've been around, maybe you've grown up in the church, you've, you've heard the gospel, you've heard the teaching of the Bible multiple, multiple times, but you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus. This morning should scare you. Because as long as you have breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity to acknowledge your sin for what it is and to surrender that before Jesus and recognize that, that he did die for your sins, your past, present, and future sins, that he rose three days later and he has a life for you now and in eternity. You can acknowledge that as long as you've got breath in your lungs. But if you leave this world without having made that confession, you are this very person that Jesus is talking about in this parable the one who is repeatedly and willfully denied the power of the Holy Spirit. That is before you now as an opportunity. It does not need to be you. If you are here, you're here for a purpose. So I don't know what's in your heart, but I know that the Lord is here and salvation is for you if you would willingly lay down your sin and believe Jesus to be exactly who he says that he is. And if you know Jesus, on the other hand, which is the, probably the majority of this room, do you walk in the confidence that we're reading about? Or do you walk in fear? Do you, do you wake up each morning and wonder, does God still love me? Does God still want to use me? Because if you do, if you really think about what that causes you to do and how that causes you to act, it, it probably paralyzes you just as we talked about. That isn't what the Lord has for you. He wants you and he wants you, me to walk in confidence. We can do that this morning. We can walk in the confidence, not of what we have done or what we've not done, but because of what he has done. We don't have self-confidence. We have Christ confidence. That's where we need to be. You and I, if you were a follower of Jesus, can walk in this confidence and we can be confident enough to test what we see. Test what we see. And if you're like, man, I, Dan, I don't know how to test these things. I don't, I'm not smart enough. I don't know. Listen. I believe that if God calls us to it, he will provide. And so I, I'm, I'm reminded of 2 Peter 1, where Peter even reminds us we've been given all things for life and godliness. Everything that you and I need to test, to see, he's going to give us. And as we continue to grow in our faith, he's going to continue to equip us. So walk in confidence, lean in, because that's what he has for us here this, this morning. Let's pray. God, you are good, and we do have to admit and we do have to acknowledge that, that Satan is working today, but you remind us in your word that greater is he than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is within me than he who is in the world. Lord, may that be our confidence. Thank you that you've not left us alone to to. to, to walk around with, with the mystery of your word and knowing who you are, knowing who Jesus is, but you tell us plainly through your word. 
You've given us scripture to be able to test what we see, what we hear, what we experience. Thank you that you have given us that. Thank you that you've given us your spirit, that you dwell within us. Lord, I don't know the hearts of each individual in this room, but I I pray that each individual will hear what you want them to hear specifically. Lord, if there's someone who is dead in their sin, would you speak their name and call them out of the tomb? Would you breathe life into them? Lord, for, for believers who are downtrodden and discouraged, would you breathe a renewed sense of life into them? And for those who are here who would say, I, I walk confidently in faith, would they continue to point back to you and give you the credit for that? Would they not become prideful and arrogant, but would they remain humble? Or wherever we are, would you speak to us? And would the truths of this confidence and, and everything that you've given us, would you even stir our hearts in this moment to respond to you rightfully in worship? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel in Akron, Ohio. Thanks for joining us today. Our Sunday morning services are at 9 and 1040 a.m. You can join us online for our services by going to akronlive.thechapel.life. For more information about the chapel, please visit our website at thechapel.life.